Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Okay, it's host Brad Kearns back in the Malibu studios with Mark Sisson. And we've had a smattering of different types of podcasts with a lot of good guests. But now we're back, back at Ground Central with Mark. And it's great to be here. I think we've had some awesome input from from the guests, and uh, now it's time to get back to what do I really think. So we were thinking about how to keep it fresh and interesting for the regular listeners, and we're going to try something a little different today. And I thought what would be fun and interesting is for you to actually read uh, one of your most popular and influential posts, the famous case against cardio. And actually, you've posted on this now several times dating back. When was the first one published? 2007. I can't believe it. Okay, so for seven years, you've been, you can speak in the truth to these poor endurance athletes who think they're actually being healthy and fit and, and trying to draw the distinction there. So uh, what I, we have here is a, a nice essay that kind of um, gets back to that original post, but also threads in some comments from some follow-up posts. So here's Mark reading A Case Against Cardio, the popular post from MarksDailyApple.com, originally published in June 2007. Unfortunately, the popular wisdom of the last 40 years, that we would all be better off doing 45 minutes to an hour a day of intense aerobic activity, has created a generation of overtrained, underfit, immune-compromised exerholics. Hate to say it, but we weren't meant to aerobicize at the chronic and sustained high intensities that so many people choose to do these days. The results are almost always unimpressive. Ever wonder why years of spin classes, endless treadmill sessions, and interminable hours on the elliptical have done nothing much to shed those extra pounds and really tone the butt? Don't worry, there's a reason why the current methods fail, and when you understand why, you'll see that there's an easier, more effective, and fun way to burn fat, build or preserve lean muscle, and maintain optimal health. The information is all there in the primal DNA blueprint, but in order to get the most from your exercise experience, first you need to understand the way we evolved and then build your exercise program around that blueprint. Like most people, I used to think that rigorous aerobic activity was one of the main keys to staying healthy, and that the more mileage you could accumulate, at the highest intensity, the better. During my 20-plus years as a competitive endurance athlete, I logged tens of thousands of training miles running and on the bike with the assumption that, in addition to becoming fit enough to race successfully at a national class level, I was also doing my cardiovascular system and the rest of my body a big, healthy favor. Being the type A that I am, I read Ken Cooper's seminal 1968 book, Aerobics, and celebrated the idea that you got to award yourself points for time spent at a high heart rate. The more points, the healthier your cardiovascular system would become, and based on that notion, I should have been one of the healthiest people on the planet. Unfortunately, I wasn't. And that same mindset has kept millions of other health-conscious, nirvana-seeking exercisers stuck in a similar rut for almost 40 years. 
It's time to get your head out of the sand and take advantage of your true DNA destiny, folks. The first signal I had that something was wrong was when I developed debilitating osteoarthritis in my ankles at age 28. This was soon coupled with chronic hip tendonitis and nagging recurrent upper respiratory tract infections. In retrospect, it's now clear that my carbohydrate-fueled, high-intensity aerobic lifestyle was promoting a dangerous level of continuous systemic inflammation, was severely suppressing other parts of my immune system, and the increased oxidative damage was generally tearing apart my precious muscle and joint tissue. The stress of high-intensity training was also leaving me soaking in my own internal cortisol bath. Cortisol is the stress hormone. It wasn't so clear to me at the time exactly what was happening. In fact, it was quite confusing since I was doing so much of this so-called healthy aerobic exercise, but I had no choice but to give up racing, unable to train anywhere near the intensity required to stay at an elite level. To make ends meet, I became a personal trainer, and I refocused my attention on training average non-athletic people to achieve reasonable levels of general fitness and health. Of course, we lifted weights as part of the overall plan, and I'll go into greater detail on that important aspect of fitness in a later post. But for the aerobic component of their training, I started doing long walks or hikes or easy bike rides with them. My many clients got the benefit of me actually working out right alongside them, and I got the benefit of three to five hours a day of very low-intensity aerobic work. Well, very low for me, anyway. It was refreshing and really didn't take much effort on my part but I knew I had to be deriving at least some small benefit from those hours. Since I didn't have much time left in the week for my own workouts, once or twice a week I'd do a very short but very intense workout for my own benefit, usually sprints at the track or hill repeats of two to three minutes each on the bike. Lo and behold, within a year, my injuries started healing. I was rarely sick, and I was even back to occasionally racing faster than ever. Something primal was happening, and it made total sense in the context of the DNA blueprint. I was training like my hunter-gatherer ancestors, building my aerobic capacity slowly and steadily without overstressing my adrenals or my immune system, training my body to derive more energy from fats and not glucose, requiring far fewer carbohydrate calories from my diet, and building muscle with occasional quick bursts of speed and intensity. I was suddenly both fit and healthy. My primal health system was kicking in and it all made perfect sense. Humans, like all mammals, evolved two primary energy systems that powered the skeletal muscles of our hunter-gatherer ancestors 40,000 years ago and that would keep us well-powered the same way today if we weren't so bent on circumventing them with our ill-fated lifestyle choices. The first energy system relied heavily on the slow burning of fats to create ATP, the universal energy currency, while we were at rest or sleeping, yet also allowing for continuous or intermittent levels of aerobic activity. Think of our ancestors like walking across the savanna for hours, foraging for roots, shoots, berries, grubs, insects, and the occasional small animal. It makes sense. Fats are very efficient fuels that are stored easily in the fat cells and burn easily and cleanly when lots of oxygen is present, as when we're breathing normally. Even if there's no food in the immediate area, a well-trained, fat-burning hunter-gatherer could continue walking and foraging for days without compromising his or her health or efficiency. The second major energy system we developed through evolution was the ATP-PC system, which allowed for intense workloads to be done in very brief bursts. Think of our hunter-gatherer ancestors sprinting to the safety of a tree to avoid being eaten by a lion. Both ATP and phosphocreatine, that's the PC, are always sitting right there within the muscle cells, 
with the former providing a quick burst of energy and the latter replenishing the former as it depletes. Together, they are the highest octane fuel we have, but it doesn't last long. In fact, it's ATP, PC, and adrenaline that allow the little old lady to lift the front end of the Ford Fairlane off her husband when the jack fails. Unfortunately, the muscles can only store about 10 to 20 seconds worth of this precious fuel to complete life-or-death tasks. If our ancestors survived that quick sprint to safety, however, their ATP and PC reserves were filled again within a minute or two, making available another 10 to 20 second slot of intensity. Furthermore, that brief burst of intense energy sparked a small growth spurt in the muscle, making it even stronger for the next encounter with the next lion, a true survival adaptation. Here's a note. While our energy systems are quite complex, varied, and interrelated, I have simplified things here to make it easier to digest. Bottom line, fats and the ATP-PC cycle were the two primary energy sources for our locomotion. We either moved slowly and steadily or fight or flight fast, and we became stronger and healthier the more we used only those energy systems. But here's the real take-home message for us. We did not evolve to rely heavily on carbohydrate-fueled energy systems, and yet carbohydrate metabolism seems to rule our lives today. Yes, carbohydrate, in the form of glucose, can play a major role in the production of energy in skeletal muscle, but it turns out that the heart and skeletal muscle prefer fatty acids, fats, as fuel over glucose. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors didn't regularly ramp up their heart rates for over an hour a day like so many of us do now. Even when the concept of organized hunting came along, it would appear that our hunter-gatherer ancestors relied more on a superior tracking ability, using our highly evolved and exceptionally large brains, and walking, using our superior fat-burning systems, rather than on actually chasing down their prey. In fact, squandering those valuable energy reserves and increasing carbohydrate and glucose metabolism by a factor of 10 by running hard for long periods of time was so counterproductive it would have likely hastened your demise. I mean, imagine chasing some game animal for a few hours and, oops, not succeeding in killing it. You've spent an incredible amount of energy, yet now you have no food to replace that energy. You have suddenly become some other animal's prey because you are physically exhausted. So what does all that mean for us in the 21st century, seeking to maximize our health and fitness? Well, we know that this current popular high-intensity aerobic pursuit is a dead end. It requires huge amounts of carbohydrates, sugar, to sustain. It promotes hyperinsulinemia, that is the overproduction of insulin. It increases oxidative damage, the production of free radicals, by a factor of 10 or 20 times normal, and generates high levels of the stress hormone cortisol in many people, leaving them susceptible to infection, injury, loss of bone density, and depletion of lean muscle tissue, while encouraging their bodies to deposit fat. Far from that healthy pursuit we all assumed it was. What, then, is the answer? Knowing what we know about our hunter-gatherer ancestors and the DNA blueprint, we would ideally devise an aerobics plan that would have us walking or hiking several hours a day to maximize our true fat-burning systems, and then doing intermittent life-or-death sprints every few days to generate those growth spurts that create stronger, leaner muscle. However, since allocating a few hours a day to this pursuit is impractical for most people, we can still create a plan that has a fair amount of low-level aerobic movement, such as walking briskly, hiking, cycling at a moderate pace a few times a week, and keeping it at under an hour. Then we can add a few intense interval sessions when we literally sprint or cycle or do anything intensely 
for 20, 30, or 40 seconds at a time, all out, and do this once or twice a week. If you are willing to try this new approach, but haven't sprinted for a while, you may want to ease into it. Start with maybe three or four the first time, resting two minutes in between, and after a few weeks of doing this, work your way up to a workout that includes six or eight all-out sprints after a brief warm-up. An easy few minutes of stretching afterwards, and you've done more in less time than you could ever accomplish in a typical 80-85% to max heart rate cardio workout. That's exactly the type of plan I do myself and that I recommend to all my readers and live lecture participants now. Let's recap. The benefits of low-level aerobic work, walking, hiking, cycling, swimming, increases capillary network. That's the blood vessels that supply the muscles with fuel and oxygen. Increases muscle mitochondria. Increases production of fat-burning and fat-transporting enzymes. More fun because you can talk with a partner while doing it. The benefits of intense interval training, sprinting in short bursts, increases muscle fiber strength. Increases aerobic capacity, that is your workability. Increases muscle mitochondria, the main energy production center in the muscle. Increases insulin sensitivity. Increases natural growth hormone production. Now let's look at the costs of chronic, repetitious, mid- and high-level aerobic work. Requires large amounts of dietary carbohydrates, that is sugar. Decreases efficient fat metabolism. Increases stress hormone cortisol increases systemic inflammation, increases oxidative damage, that's the free radical production, and it's boring. Now, here's the follow-up post I wrote. The evidence continues to mount against chronic cardio. Despite my attempts to clarify the dangers associated with the chronic cardio and chronic exercise in general over the past few years, I still receive a lot of questions and comments about cardio. People just have a tough time divorcing themselves from the notion that cardio, that is as much as you can cram into your schedule, is the key to health and fitness. I don't blame them, really. It's conventional wisdom, after all, and it's what I thought for years and years. Clearly, another post is needed. Evidence against chronic cardio continues to mount, so there's a lot to cover. But before we get to all the research, I have a few thoughts about the heart. Here's the thing about the heart. Being an involuntary muscle, it has no say in the matter. It pretty much feels nothing, too. It's along for the ride. Just like the liver, kidneys, pancreas, thyroid, adrenals, etc., the heart responds to biochemical signals. It's a demand organ. Minor changes in blood chemistry, epinephrine, cortisol, insulin, lactic acid, hemoglobin-depleted red blood cells, to name a few, cause it to respond by beating faster or slower, forcefully or not, to keep pace with the muscles and the other organs' demand for oxygen and fuel. During exercise, it's the brain that starts this whole process with a conscious decision. I think I'll run to that tree. That thought prompts the muscles of the legs to start moving faster and the arms to pump. The new increased demand for oxygen and added fuel, over and above normal resting metabolism, signals the heart to start to fulfill the demand, to pump harder and faster. It's obliged to do so, period. No choice. That's also why it's always a bit behind schedule. It takes more than a few seconds to ramp itself up once the action begins, and a few seconds or minutes, or hours in the case of an overtrainer, to ramp down once it's over. The problem with chronic cardio is that we can force our brains to override some of the tiredness and discomfort in the legs, and to a certain extent even the lungs, and keep doing these hard endurance workouts incessantly day in and day out. 
The ostensible limiting factor is the ability to burn fat, or at the very least, the amount of glycogen still left in our muscles. That's what eventually brings us to a halt, frequently because we've willed ourselves to keep going through the wall at all costs. But the heart is often overworked in this scenario, just trying to keep up with that inhuman and inhumane desire to run, cycle, or swim further and faster in pursuit of what? A medal? A ribbon? Bragging rights? The heart can't say no. It attempts to do as we bid it. And because the heart feels little to no pain, unless perhaps it feels the real pain of a heart attack, it very often suffers silently as a result without us ever knowing. The walls of the heart start to hypertrophy over time, the same way a biceps muscle does when you do curls. But do a few too many curls and your biceps will quickly get sore. Force yourself to do a few more and you could even tear something and be out of contention for a few weeks. We know when to stop, when and before that bicep tears. Cardiac muscle doesn't tear that way when overworked, but it does enlarge and thicken with chronic overuse. In some, most people, the thickening is probably not life-threatening. But in some cases, as with dozens of world-class athletes I have personally known, this thickening can cause all manner of issues later in life. Atrial fibrillation, AFib, has become a mild epidemic in my generation of lifelong aerobicizers. Several of my friends have had pacemakers or defibrillators implanted before the age of 40 to head off those sporadic life-threatening cardiac innervation problems. A few more friends have lost significant cardiac function and a few have died. But don't take my word for it. This silent epidemic of heart issues among endurance athletes is getting serious attention from the research community. Let's take a look at some of the latest research. Cardiac arrhythmias. Cardiac arrhythmias are abnormal electric activities of the heart. An arrhythmia can describe a heart that beats too fast, too slowly, too irregularly, or too fluttery. An arrhythmia doesn't always indicate or foretell heart trouble, but it's a common risk factor. One of the more common varieties is atrial fibrillation, AF, which describes a fast, irregular heartbeat. AF is strongly linked to stroke and cognitive decline. Endurance athletes are at a greater risk for atrial fibrillation than the general non-running public. One recent study of cross-country skiers even found that the best athletes, the top performers, were more likely to have cardiac arrhythmias than the rest. Moderate exercisers, meanwhile, are at a lower risk for AF than the general non-running public. A recent comprehensive study offers several potential explanations for the increased risk. Increased fibrosis, scar tissue formation in the heart. Myocardial injury to the heart, as evidenced by post-training elevated cardiobiomarkers typically used to diagnose injuries. Probably not a big deal so long as you fully recover from your training, but most cardio junkies can't wait that long to log more miles. Excessive amounts of inflammatory markers brought on by training. These markers have been linked to AF. Endurance-related AF usually starts off infrequently. The older you get and the more miles you log, the more entrenched and regular your atrial fibrillation may get. Some studies found that around 40% of the athletes with atrial fib eventually progress to persistent AFib, where it's happening on a regular basis. That's the troubling kind of AF that may presage serious cardiovascular problems like stroke. Atherosclerosis. It's totally counterintuitive to think that endurance athletes are at risk for arterial plaque. You mean to tell me that the wispy gray beard whizzing past my house in short shorts every evening could have clogged arteries? No way. Well, maybe. Just maybe. A 2011 study found evidence of carotid and peripheral atherosclerosis in a group of marathoners. Although there was no control group of non-runners in that study, 
Another study compared the arteries of marathon runners to a control group of sedentary non-marathoners. The marathoners had more calcified plaque in their coronary arteries, which has been linked to stroke and dementia. The tricky thing about these cases is that endurance athletes with atherosclerosis don't evince the regular sign, whereas your typical sedentary guy with extensive atherosclerosis will probably have all the hallmarks, metabolic syndrome, abdominal obesity, hypertension, etc. Marathon runners with atherosclerosis don't fit the traditional cardiovascular risk profile. It might be time to add, quote, trains for endurance athletics, unquote, to the list of risk factors. Oxidative stress and overtraining. It's no secret that endurance training induces oxidative stress on the athlete. That's how we get better, by encountering a stressor, being broken down a bit and then recovering stronger than before so the next time we encounter that stressor will be better than the last time. Whether we're talking strength training, marathon running, cycling, gymnastics, martial arts, or even studying for a trigonometry class, we have to challenge our physiology to get better. And challenges to the physiology mean oxidative stress. Problems arise when we don't let up, when we keep the intensity elevated and the days off few and far between. We're constantly in that post-workout state and it starts to look like chronic oxidative stress for all intents and purposes. Even if our times are improving, we're not truly recovering. It's sort of a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. So, those are just a few of the reasons I am no fan of chronic cardio, and don't even get me started on the bad backs, the osteoarthritis, the hip and knee replacements, and the chronic tendonitis among my former elite endurance peers. A strong will can be a great thing for survival, for business, and for relationships, but it can also get you into trouble if you don't pay attention to your training load. Having said all that, I'm still a big fan of weights, a brief intermittent interval training, and I'm all for doing a fair amount of mixed low-level cardio, the kind that doesn't overstress the heart or involves so much repetitive joint motion that it causes chronic injury. That makes sense in an ancestral context. You're expending energy at a high rate, but you're not going long enough that it becomes a liability. Or, if you're going long, you're taking it easy enough that you have the energy to make it back home, possibly carrying food. I'm not even against a long training run or ride once in a while, provided you're trained, rested, and have allowed enough recovery afterwards. I'm even okay with running marathons occasionally or jumping into a short triathlon now and then. As a species, we obviously have the capacity to go long and relatively hard every now and then. It's that chronic day-in, day-out, long, hard stuff that's counterproductive. If you did that 20,000 years ago, when your next meal and that of your entire family or tribe was on the line, when calories were somewhat precious, when you didn't have an air-conditioned caravan of trainers, massage therapists, and coolers filled with electrolyte drinks following after you, you'd be foolish. You simply wouldn't do it. That we can run marathons and do other stupid things and know that we'll get out alive is a luxury of modern living. There are so many other less damaging ways to achieve what I would call high-level adaptive fitness by using a variety of training methods, all of which can be cardioprotective and joint strengthening when done the right way and at the appropriate times. Heck, when it comes to hypertension, blood lipids, and type 2 diabetes, walking is just as effective as running without the potential downsides. Everyone can walk. Everyone thinks they can run, but running is a skill that must be learned. To run with poor form is to welcome injury, doubly so if you're running an excessive amount. All this will be addressed in detail in my forthcoming book, Primal Endurance. For now, use your brain and listen to your body. 
My point, of course, is that the human organism is made for short, intense bursts of activity laid atop a foundation of frequent, slow moving. We aren't supposed to run as hard as we can for two or three hours. We're not supposed to run with the express purpose of burning calories. We can certainly choose to do those activities and will become adapted or perhaps injured to them, and they may make us fit, but they're not the healthiest, most efficient path to fitness. Chronic cardio is the meandering, roundabout trail that will get you there with a ton of bruises, scratches, a tick or two, and a sprained ankle. Oh, and you might get eaten by a bear along the way. It's your choice. Mark, thanks. That was great. How you feeling? You're a little tired? That was a long read. Uh, that was almost chronic cardio in itself. I was breathing heavy toward the end, yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny is that I've read this thing so many times. We talk about it and, and you know, the, the tangents that arise from this for, for years. But just to hear it again and to have some of these concepts cemented and, and you know, re, uh, reawakened, I think is really important. And I want to do a follow-up post, perhaps, where we can get into some of the more disturbing comments about the injuries to the heart that some of our fittest uh, peers have sustained. And also, another thing that you mentioned in passing, I think, is really important so that people don't get the wrong uh, perspective. Yeah, it's okay once in a while, if you like this stuff, to go run a marathon or whatever you want to do. Um, that's a big difference from saying, all this stuff is terrible and you should stop, because I know a lot of people out there love doing that stuff. Yeah, it's. I, I think the backlash to the original post was, well, Mark hates running, Mark is uh, you know anti-anything cardio, and really what I'm talking about is this chronic sense that we have to get out and do this hard, or even even relatively hard, on a regular or semi-regular basis in order to be fit and, uh, and that we're doing ourselves uh, a solid in terms of health. Uh, for example, I was just in Aspen last week, and every day in Aspen I hiked, and you know, Aspen's at altitude, so you start out at 8,000 or 8,500 feet, and you go up to 11, 12, 13,000 feet. They're long, hard hikes. It was a tough week for me. You could almost call it chronic cardio. Every one of the hikes I did, I did for time. You know, I'm sort of I'm, I'm competing against my previous times on these same hikes. But the fact that I was fit enough to go there and do those hikes and work really, really hard in those hikes isn't necessarily indicative of my having engaged in chronic cardio. I was, I was fit because of the six weeks prior, the, the easy stuff that I'd done. So I was able to knock off those mountains while I was there. But it's not something that I would recommend doing day in, day out, which a lot of people tend to do. Right, and I think we also get caught up, the athletes especially, the, the more serious about, oh, I'm, I'm smart to take a, a day off each week, or I'm on a hard day, easy day pattern. And really, you have to take a step back and realize that the patterns can be, it could be a hard year, easy year, or it could be a hard month, or in your case, you had a hard week in Aspen, I'm going to guess that you're not going to be out pounding the hiking in Malibu for a while. No, in fact, I'm taking this week easy because of the hard week that I had in Aspen. But it... it what I and I'll, I'll leave it for the listeners today uh, uh, to sort of decide for themselves. But what I want for people is to develop an intuitive sense of when it's time to go hard and when it's time to back off, and and to know intuitively sometimes that it is too much, and that even though you started out on that workout, maybe it's best to turn around and go home and walk home, or or you know ride the bike easy home if you don't have it that day. It's that that sense of of, of intuition. And by the same token, if you feel really, really recovered and rested and strong and today's the day that you want to do that PR, absolutely go for it. But that's the sense that, that I've developed over the past 10 years for myself that may, gives me a real uh, empowering feeling about control over my health and my fitness 
knowing on a day-to-day basis when it's appropriate to go hard and when it's necessary to back off. Yeah, and you know what? Here's the pushback I get from people on this. Oh, intuition, you know, that's better than a schedule. And then they say, well, look, I'm, I'm not that experienced. I'm not an elite athlete like you were or, or whatever their, their excuse is. They don't believe that they have a good intuitive sense or that they need more knowledge to be intuitive. You know, it's, um, intuition is a skill that you develop as an athlete because any time you elect to take on uh, a marathon, a half marathon, a 10K, a century ride, a, a triathlon, you are, in, you are taking on something that's unnatural. And in order to, to develop an, an intuition about how to train for this unnatural thing, you may have to start recording your workouts and recording in, in excruciating detail how you feel at the end of the workouts and record your heart rate and record what you ate uh, the day before. You might have to do this for months as you're getting into your training program to develop an intuitive sense to where you don't need to record anymore because now you have it dialed in. Right. And if, if you are just starting out and uh, thinking of taking a crack at this and, and departing from the regimented approach, I contend that those simple sensations like, oh, I really don't feel like it today, that those deserve more attention than maybe they get from people who think, oh, I'm just being lazy. I agree. I agree. I mean, there, there are days I go to the gym and uh, I'll be literally the first set into a workout and go, you know what? I don't have it today. And people laugh at me and I, they, you say, well, you, you've been here three minutes. What, you're going home. I get, well, you know, it's not there today. I'm going home. Um, I recognize I need a rest day more than I need a training day. Yeah. I never forget uh, for the triathletes who are probably aware of the world famous Tuesday run in North County of San Diego. And this is a 12 mile cross country run that will draw around 100 of the excellent, most fittest athletes in San Diego and top triathletes in the world. And I remember one day going down there and I was so nervous I wanted to be up there with the front guys. And, you know, Mark Allen and Scott Tinley and all these top guys went. And I remember um, finishing the run and just stretching in the parking lot. And here comes Mark Allen, who's the greatest triathlete in the world, um, the fittest guy you'll ever see in, in your life. And he's some 10 minutes behind the pack, the last guy. And I'm like, Grip, what are you doing, man? He's like, oh, I I overslept today. And it's like, here's the most serious and most accomplished athlete in the world. And he decided that he needed a little more sleep. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that intuitive sense. And Mark Allen certainly had that for much of his career. uh, And it guided him. It it kept him uh, at the top of his game uh, by being very strategic about when when it was appropriate to go hard and when it was necessary to back off. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for for doing that read. I hope the listeners appreciated it. And we will get to a follow-up discussion on this same point because I think it's very important for people. So thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint podcast with Mark Sisson in Malibu. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Until next time. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, 
posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous Primal Con Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous Primal Con food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the Primal Con link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual Primal Con Oxnard. September 25th through 28th, 2014.